All right, let's get to God's word. Acts chapter 1 is where we are as we uh, re-engage with a series that we started this past year and then have taken a break for an entire semester when we looked at 1 John in the fall. We come back into Acts is where we will be for the rest of this semester in the winter and spring. And we want to go back to the first part of the book in order to remember what the book is about. This morning, we're actually going to look at chapters 15 and 16 is where our focus is going to be. But to drive us back at the beginning of the book to help us give us context as to where we're going in Acts, we want to look back at Acts chapter 1. So hear God's word. I'll read verses 1 through 5 and then skip down to verse 8 and read through verse 11. And the first book of Theophilus, so Luke is the writer, he's writing to Theophilus. He says this, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Drop down to verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This ends the reading of God's holy inerrant and infallible word. What a quick review, very, very brief review as to what Acts is about. Acts, as it says here in the very first verse, is about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. The first book, he says, Luke says in his gospel, he started all that Jesus began to do and teach. And therefore, what Acts is, is the continuation of what Jesus began to do and to teach. And we see in these early verses the setup for the rest of the the book in which Jesus is ascended into heaven and he now sits at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over a kingdom. And then as he goes, and as he's about to ascend up to that throne room in heaven, he gives his apostles and his people and his church, that's us, a commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so we could ask this question, though. What it says here that what Jesus began to do in the teach, what is it specifically that Jesus is doing in heaven now? What is Jesus continuing to do in this world for us? Because that is what Acts is about. Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do from his throne as he rules and reigns over over this earth as the Lord and King. And he's doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit through his people, the apostles, and through his church. So we jump now to Luke chapter 15 and 16, and we pick back up in the story of what Jesus is doing from his throne through his church, and what is it that Jesus is doing? Two things we're going to look at this morning are really two sections, because we're looking at a massive chunk of scripture. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and we will be dealing with from there all the way through chapter 16. Instead of reading all of that and taking the time to do that, we'll simply, I'm going to take it kind of buckshot this morning. This, it was great. We had the sovereignty of God. We had a very, uh, we, we focused on that very 
very pastorally this morning. This morning is going to be like a gat gun. It's going to be, read a verse, here's what it's saying. Here's a verse, here's what it's saying. But I want to break down our passage this morning and answering the question of what Jesus is continuing to do in two sections. Two sections this morning. Not really points, but just sections. One heading for, for section one is this. That Jesus, what he is doing now, is sovereignly sending. He is sovereignly sending. And this is what we see in, in chapter 15, 36 through 16, 10. Let's just go through this verse by verse, and I'll give some points as we go. Pick it up in verse 36. Chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. I'm going to walk through this, and after I stop, after each of these verses, I want to give you a principle about how God sends us, or how God guides us. One of the great questions that we often have is, what is God's will for my life? Where to God? Where do I go next? Who do I marry? Where, what job am I supposed to, ta- to, to take? These questions are huge in our lives, and so I want to walk through here as we go through these verses, is just guidance principles that God gives us. So verse 36 is showing us the first principle, and it's this. God uses our desires to guide us, our simple desires. We often think of the Bible as God telling us where to go by giving us visions or dreams or having a prophet come and telling us what to do or there's something spectacular going on, but that's not what we see in verse 36 when Paul and Silas decide to go do this missionary journey, is it? There are no dancing hobbits. There are no visions. There are nothing spectacular going on here. There's nothing bizarre going on in this text. It's simply all it is. If Paul and Silas saw it, you know what would be a good thing to do? We should go back to those churches that we planted before and encourage them. That's his pastoral desire, and so that's what they did. I said this, I sent this to a text to somebody in our church this week who had a big decision to make, and I simply said this, seek first the kingdom of God and do what you want. Because if you're seeking first the kingdom of God, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. God has given you his mission. And very often we complicate his will by having all these, oh yes, we should look for wisdom. We should look for guidance. But first and foremost, you seek God's kingdom. That's what Paul and Barnabas are doing. And then you simply do what you want. As long as it's obedient to God's word. So that's what we see here. Don't think that the Bible is just simply filled with stories of angels and prophets and fingers on walls and dreams of telling people where to go and who to marry. Most often, God uses what you want to do. In the normal mundane of the life, of your life, that's how he uses it. Picking up, keeping going in chapter 15, verse 37 in your Bibles. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement that is between Paul and Barnabas. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Paul with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what we see here is Paul and Barnabas split up. They split up, and not only that, but they have a disagreement. Now, it's interesting. These are two brothers who love each other. Barnabas has been Paul's greatest supporter. He is the one when the church in Jerusalem didn't trust Paul. He's the one who convinced them to allow Paul to come meet with the church there. Paul is known as the encourager. He is a pastor. He is a lover, not a hater. Paul's truth-oriented, and Paul loves Barnabas. He cares for Barnabas. And yet what we see here is that the encourager and the truth man have a conflict, It may have been their sense of personality as to how to deal with John Mark, 
But the history here of what, what they're fighting about is on the first missionary journey is apparently a guy named John Mark, who we believe is the guy who wrote you the gospel of Mark. He was going along with them on the missionary journey. And at some point, we're not entirely sure why, he decided to bail. There's all sorts of speculations to why he decided to bail, whether he missed mama. He was a little rich kid. He was a mama's boy. And so he, he decided to go back home, perhaps, or maybe it got too hard. Or literally, the place where Paul and, and Barnabas were about to go when John Mark bailed was a place where they were going to have to climb a lot of mountains. And so some people have actually speculated that Mark was just simply too out of shape to do the rest of the journey. Either way, he bailed. And Paul is now thinking as they start the second journey, is he saying, listen, I'm going And Barnabas, you can come with me, but I ain't taking that boy. He's a wimp. He's lost his chance. And so what happens is they split up and they have a disagreement over this. Now, what's up with this? Now, what's interesting is Luke, here in Acts, never tells us who's right and who's wrong. It's a blank. It's a silence. And I'm, quite frankly, I'm glad he did. We don't necessarily know, know who's right and who's wrong. Perhaps both of them are right. Perhaps for the missionary journey that Paul was about to take, John Mark was not the right man to go with him. And perhaps what Barnabas was going to do, John Mark was the right guy to go with him. But here's what I do want you to see, that good men can disagree. And we will often disagree about ministry aspects. But the Bible is not a fairy tale. It is not just puppy dogs and rainbows and everybody just loves each other all the time. These are the God, some of the godliest men in all the Bible, and yet they have a disagreement. Now, there is, a, there is a happy ending to this. Paul goes on the trailblaze, but at the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes, and he, ta- he writes to Timothy, and he says, please bring Mark with you. He says, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. So maybe Paul softened, began to appropriate grace more in his dealings with other people, and maybe John Mark got a little bit tougher. But whatever way it was, there was reconciliation in the end. But here's what I want you to get in regards to a guidance principle this morning from this. That God, in guiding us, uses our sins and our conflicts. God uses them. We sang about it this morning. That God is even, we see in the story of Joseph, when Joseph's brothers throw him in a well, and then they sell him into slavery. Joseph says to his brothers later on in Genesis, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it's the same thing that God can do here. What happens to the missionary work in the church? It's doubled. Barnabas and, and, and John Mark go on to do their work, and God blesses it, and Paul and Silas go on to do their work. We have a multiplication factor of mission, missionary teams, and that is not God's ideal, but it is how God has worked, has chosen to work sovereignly in these moments. So God uses separation. God uses conflicts. God uses suffering and hard things to bring glory to himself and to continue the gospel. We continue on. Verse 1 of chapter 16, we'll read through verse 3. And Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. So now we've, we've bailed on, on Barnabas and John Mark. They're doing their thing. Now we're focusing on Paul. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. All right, so what happened? what's going on here? Paul adds Timothy to the team, to the missionary team. So now it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Timothy has a believing mama and an unbelieving dad. 
And Timothy has a great reputation amongst the men of these cities. This is great. This is a young guy that Paul is adding to the team. But then there's this thing there going on in the end about the circumcision stuff. And if you want, this is to give us, help us reveal a little bit where we are in Acts. In Acts chapter 15, right before Paul goes on this missionary journey, there's this huge meeting of the church. And they decide this, that the grace of the gospel means that all you have to do is accept Jesus. You do not have to become a Jew or take on Jewish cultural practices and take on Old Testament laws in order to be a follower of Jesus. That's what they've decided in Acts chapter 15. And in much of what Paul is doing is he's going to the churches and saying, hey, it's great. It's all the grace of God. You don't have to take on all these outward, external, cultural forms. You don't have to become a person whose citizenship is an Israelite in order to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, what do we see Paul doing here? Right after this big decision has been made, Paul says, hey, Timothy, I need you to get circumcised. Now, now this is quite a lot of sacrifice on Timothy's part, isn't it? I mean, for a short-term missions trip, I mean, some of you are getting recruited to go on a short-term missions trip this year with CO, and they're going, okay, you're, you're going to have to raise some money. And you're going, I can do that. I can raise some money. <laughs> and then they're going, okay, but you're also going to have to leave your job, so you're gonna, there's going to be some opportunity costs. I can do that. And all right, a job, will, God will provide a job when we get back. You're going to have to leave your mom and your dad and your girlfriend. Man, that's going to be painful, but I, that's, that's all right. It's worth it. And you're going to have to be circumcised. Excuse me, come again? You'd be like, um, is there any other short-term teams we can go on that's not to the Jews? Why is Paul having Timothy do this? This is not a matter of law. This is a matter of mission. See, Paul is having Timothy be circumcised because this is an issue not of salvation. You don't, in order to be saved, you don't have to become a Jew. That you in orbit, this is an issue of mission and encouraging the mission to move forward. You see, what Paul does when he goes on his missionary journeys, when he goes to a new city, the first place he goes is to the Jewish synagogues. And if you're a, a Jewish male and you had not been circumcised, when you come to the synagogue, I'm not sure how they know this. I don't know how this works. Imagine me and the usher at this at synagogue. Uh, who wants to volunteer for the usher role? We have this closet over here. We need you to man. Here's the issue. Timothy would not be allowed in to the synagogues, which means no missionary work for Timothy in the synagogue. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, Timothy, you must be circumcised because this is a matter of being able to engage in the missionary work that we are going to engage in over the next couple months. See, if Paul has this belief that I become all things to all people so that I might win some for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means I'll even take on cultural forms. This means if you go to a Muslim country, you sit on the floor, right? You take on the norms. There are things objectively about the gospel that we will never give up and we will never waver on. But there are many things in regards to how we communicate the gospel and how we interact with people that are going to be changed by the cultural norms around us. And you should try to do everything in your power to remove those barriers, those cultural and relational and personal barriers in order for the gospel to be heard. That's what Paul's saying here. That's why he has Timothy do this. And here's what I want to talk to you about here in regards to the guiding principle. What God uses here is he uses your background and he uses your situation. Listen, there's many things in which there is not a law for you. Do I drink alcohol or do I not drink alcohol? 
These are called situational ethics. Now, biblically speaking, there is no mandate against drinking alcohol, right? The command is drink, but do not get drunk. And yet Paul says at various times, I will put these things that I have a right to aside in order to win some for the gospel. In other words, there may be seasons of your life you may say, listen, this is my right. I should be able to wear this. I should not have to wear that. I should be able to eat this or drink that or go there, but I'm not going to do so because it would offend some people. And I would lose the right to communicate to them gospel or it would put up a barrier to the gospel. And what we're saying is Timothy's background, because he is half Jewish, half Greek, it was important, he was considered a Jew, and it was, so therefore it was important to those he was going to be ministering to for him to go ahead and be circumcised. Listen, there are many things in your life in which God uses, he guides you as to how you behave and how you live based on the situation he's put you in and the background he has given you. We move on. How does God lead them then to Philippi? We pick up in verse 6, and this is where we're going to see a ton of God's guiding principles for us. Verses 6 through 10, I'll read that. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, excuse me, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Man, this is one of the best four or five verses in understanding God's guidance for us. There's so much here. We, we tend to focus on the spectacular and the dream here, but there's so much more than just the spectacular guidance from the dream. Four, a couple other principles here I want you to see that come out of these verses. The fourth is this. God uses both open and closed doors to guide you. There's an old commentator named A.T. Pearson. Old guys in regards to guidance are the best. Listen to them when it comes to God's guidance. They've been through the wars. They've learned to listen. A.T. Pearson says this, God calls open and closed doors, he calls it God's double guidance. The two lanes of God's guidance. Generally, we don't like closed doors, do we? We find closed doors really frustrating. All right, so often we're like this. We pray, God, what do you want me to do? But when we look into the, what we think he's doing, he's calling us to do, we go in a particular direction, and then he seems to shut that door. And we go, okay, God, all right, I'm going to ask it again. What do you want me to do? And you say, I think he's calling me to destruction. I move in that direction, and God goes, no, I'm going to shut that door too. And then you go, okay, God, a little bit frustrating. Not going to lie. I keep asking. We get to perhaps get depressed, thinking that God isn't answering us. Maybe we don't, he doesn't care about what we do. But what I want you to understand is this, is that God is in the closed doors as much as he is in the open doors. Closed doors are, is not a manifestation of God's absence in your life. It's the manifestation of God's direction in your life. In fact, what we see here, this is the beginning, you're the beginning of the history of missions. And what Paul experienced, the history of missions is bristling with story after story after story of God closing doors and opening others. For example, the legendary and historical, historic missionary David Livingston, he tried to go to China first. God shut down that door and sent him to Africa instead. He became the most well-known missionary ever to go to Africa. William Carey, he planned to go to Polynesia in the South Seas. God closed that door and guided him to India and began the church in India. Adoniram Judson, he went to India first, but then God pushed him out of India and into Burma. All three of these men had original plans 
have places where they thought God was sending them. And God said, no, I'm closing that door and I'm sending you somewhere else. God uses the open and the closed doors in your life. It it can be frustrating, but you keep going to him and seeking his face and saying, God, where are you calling me next? His closed doors doesn't mean you necessarily sinned. It doesn't mean you haven't heard correctly. And it doesn't mean he is absent in your life. He is there with you all the way. General principle number five from this passage. God is okay with us not knowing where he's sending us. You may not be okay with it, but he appears to be just fine with it. With him knowing and you not knowing. Look at verse eight. It's easy to pass by. It says this. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. This is after, in verses six and seven, the Holy Spirit has shut the door to two places. And if you look on a map as to where Paul and Silas and Timothy are, they're literally just wandering around Asia. I mean, they're like, all right, what are we doing? We don't know. We don't know where we're going. And they do like literally this long arc. There's, it appears to be, there's no linear pattern to it. It's just, they're just wandering around. And here's what I want to say, an encouragement in your life. There are times and seasons in your life where you're not exactly sure where God's calling you. What is God telling me to do after school? Which job is he asking me to take? And you don't know. And guess what? Paul didn't know. And that's okay. Because God does know. And he may be waiting, telling you, you have to wait and you have to be patient and you have to actually have a season where you simply trust him and say, I'm gonna go in this direction. I'm not hearing anything clear from you, God. But I know you've called me to to proclaim your name and to obey you. And I'm gonna do that. Maybe here, maybe over there. I'm not sure. I'm just wandering around, hopefully doing your will. And I trust that in time, you will reveal to me something more specific. Six, six guiding principle in God, how God guides us. God's leading is often, God uses a progression of turns. I don't, I'm not sure if this is a Western or 20th and 21st century idea. We have this perspective that we are asking God for these decisions that are going to be kind of like, life-altering in the sense of that this is our direction for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a plumber, and this is where I am for the next 80 years. Or there's the one, if I just, I got to figure out that one person I'm supposed to marry. Now, in marriage it is, unless they die. You are supposed to stay with them forever. But God's direction often doesn't come immediately. And often, he may direct you to go a certain way for a little while, and then changes those directions. He may shift. Understand here, this is what Paul and Barnabas, or Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing. They're wandering. They're trying to find, seek out the will of God. God has called them in a particular direction. Where do they start? This whole missionary journey is all about just simply pastoring and encouraging the churches. And then it changes into something more. And eventually they're going to end up in Europe. But that wasn't the original plan. But that doesn't mean God's call upon their life to go and pastor and care and strengthen those churches was wrong. You think of it this way. Your life is a series of turns, and God is in all those turns. If you listen to your GPS, and let's assume GPS is get it correct, and the GPS says, stay on this road for 40 miles, and you're on that road for 40 miles, and it says, go straight, go straight, go straight, and then suddenly it tells you to turn right, does that mean the direction before about telling you to go straight was wrong? No. This is how God is. God will tell you for a certain season of your life that you're supposed to be here and you're supposed to do this. And then at some point, he may redirect you and that is okay. 
We don't live in a world in which we get to stay in the same place all the time or have the same life for 40 and 50 and 60 years. Some of us do, some of us don't. But this should be encouraging to you. God is constantly, he's using a progression of turns in your life, we see here. General principle number seven about how God guides us from these verses. That God uses both mystical and the rational. Do you see this? He sends a vision to Paul in a dream. And yet, then what do Paul and his friends do? It says they conclude that God was calling them to Macedonia. In other words, there's a vision and a dream, but they weren't just going like, well, I got a vision. I guess I'm going to Macedonia. Because if you, if they're probably kind of like you and me, right? That when we have a weird dream, we don't get up over our eggs and bacon going, you know what? Man, I was in Alaska last night in my dream. I guess I'm supposed to go to Alaska. Right? We don't do that. And yet, for some reason, Paul and his friends, what they do is they take this mystical aspect where God, he chooses to communicate to us in dreams. And so he, if he communicates in a dream, what have they still thought about it? They go, does this make sense? Is this rational? Does it make sense for us to go to Macedonia? Is this in accord with God's word? Would be this, this be disobedience? Is this in accord with the mission of God? Okay, all these things are good. They thought about it and they concluded that yes, this would be an appropriate move for us. Now, there are certain types of Christians who are also often trying to get to understand God's will in their life and they're asking for God to show them some vision and some dream. Very, very rarely does God actually do that. But it doesn't mean that he never does that. Because there are others, probably like many of you in this room, like very rational, scientific, modernist people who say, man, I'm not, I'm not taking instructions from a dream. That's like what I ate last night. That's, that's an issue of like my digestive system. That's not an issue of God communicating to me, right? But we have to begin to understand and see the balance in the scriptures. That there is times where God may speak to you. I remember when God called us to adopt, go move forward in adoption. I'm a Presbyterian. By doctrine, we are not supposed to hear from God. We literally have a doctrine that's called the doctrine of cessationism, which is God is done talking to us. I don't agree with the doctrine, but that is one of the doctrines that Presbyterians often believe. And yet the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, it is time to move forward with adoption. It wasn't an audible voice, but I knew. I sat down, I pulled a postcard out of my bag, and I wrote my wife a note that said, God has spoken to me saying, we need to move forward in adoption. Now, did it, you know, God didn't tell me to wear a, you know, a bologna sandwich costume. Right? I, I thought about it. This is rational. This is in line with God's mission. This is in line with the desires of our heart. And so we're going to move forward. And so I thought about it, but it was also mystical as well. God uses both the mystical and the rational. Lastly, of God's guiding principles. God uses personal and communal means to guide us. God comes and speaks directly and individually to Paul, but they make it the decision as a group. It says, we concluded the vision came to Paul, but did Paul simply make the decision all on his own? No, he submitted it to the community of believers around him. And this is a great practical wisdom principle in regards to how you seek God's guidance. God, and you may have a sense that God is guiding me in this direction, but like Amanda going to Birmingham, I'm sure she talked to many people, her, her family, those she loved, that, that you talk to the people around you to get this wisdom. Is, is this where God is directing me? Does this make sense? We make decisions communally. God has not given you the Christian life to be lived all on your own. He speaks to you and provides his wisdom and his care through the brothers and sisters around you. So don't be a lone ranger, Christian. Seek God's guidance, yes, fervently in prayer on your own, but then draw other people in with you. 
Ask their advice. Ask wise men and women. Ask if you're married, you better ask your spouse. Right? Capiche, all right, good. But in the midst of, because some of you may be frustrated by these principles because they're very vague, aren't they? You're still going, okay, that's nice. This clears up some things, but there's still this whole, the finding the will of God and trying to discern where God's, it's, it's still really vague. Well, that's okay. God's okay with you living in the vagueness. But God does give you some things that are crystal clear in the Bible and they're seen in Acts 1 where we started this morning. I just want to give you a few. Here's some glorious guarantees in the midst of these general principles. Some glorious guarantees are first is this, is one, is Jesus is ascended and he is king, which means he rules and he reigns over the hairs in your head. And he cares more about your life than you do and he's in control of your life. He's in control of every step that you take. That's what the kingship of Jesus means. That's a clear principle. There ain't nothing changing that. Second, Acts 1 also tells us that Jesus is the resurrected Lord who guarantees your future. When Jesus was resurrected, that means for all of eternity, you may not know the direction of the next five years of your life, but you know the ending place. It's all garbage about, it's, it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Yo, it's about, it's about the destination, people. And he has made the destination quite clear. What is the song? We love to sing it. We sing it. It's almost always the last song we sing in our worship order often when we do sing it. I am bound for what? I am bound for Jordan, for the promised land. That that is where you're going. God may call you to Destin tomorrow. He may call you to Birmingham or Atlanta or Brisbane. But ultimately where he's calling you is his side in heaven. And that is crystal clear. Therefore, it takes the stress off. Go where you want to go. Go where it seems wise to go. And understand that where God's sending you ultimately is a great place because of his resurrection. Acts 1 also tells us what we are supposed to do along the way. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer. Who cares? (laughs) Wherever you go, would you tell people about Jesus? If you've been gifted with a legal mind, then be a lawyer. If you've been gifted with the ability to deal with the the plumbing of the human body, then be a doctor. It doesn't matter. Serve Jesus wherever God sends you. Wherever vocation he has you, serve him there. Engage there. And be good at it. Because it makes a winning for the gospel when you're good at things. When you carry out your, your vocation well. But wherever God, God may have you in a place for two years, and then he sends you somewhere else. He gives you a new job. That's okay. That's part of his leading. That's the progression of those turns. Acts 1 and Acts 16 lastly tell us this. He's given us, he tells us who's in charge, tells us where we're going, tells us what we're supposed to do along the way. And then lastly, Acts 1 and Acts 16 make it abundantly clear this, that he is with you all the way. What does it say in Acts 1? He's going to give you the Holy Spirit. And what we see in Acts chapter 16 is God is intervening and he is directing every step of the way, even when it seems like he is silent. He is there. It's interesting, three times we see in these verses, in 6, 7, and 10, we see God's specific and clear directing, his invasion into Paul's life. Verse 6, in fact, it's Trinitarian, oddly enough. In verse 6, it says the Holy Spirit said no. He can't go there. And verse 7, it says the spirit of Jesus said no. And then in verse 10, it says God has called us to Macedonia. All three members of the Trinity are involved in your life and directing you and they're with you. God is with us. 
So God is king. He rules over your life. He's bringing you to himself. That's the end destination. He's giving you a mission. And he says, all along the way, I'm going to go with you. God is with us in the yeses and the noes. He's with you in the closed doors and the open doors. He's with you in the joys and the sorrows. He is there. David Livingston said this, very famous quote. He said, without Christ, not one step. With Christ, anywhere. Anywhere. So my question for you is, you, have you sovereignly, have you submitted yourself to the sovereign leading of Jesus? You submitted to his leading in your life. I've never done this. That's only halfway through the sermon. And so we're going to stop there. It's 11.50. I might get skewered by somebody who says that uh, I should just preach for an hour and a half. Ain't no one's going to say that. But <laughs> I think, Yeah, we'll stop there. I want to take us to the table. So elders, you can come forward. Here's the beautiful truth, and I'll go with this. The challenge of your life, and frankly, the challenge of the missionary call that, that Paul submitted himself to, that Barnabas and Silas submitted themselves to, that is a hard call. Because God, it might mean that you have to leave a church that you love. It might mean that you end a relationship that you were really depending on. It might mean that you experience a lot of disappointments as God closes doors. And so the challenge of submitting your life to Jesus, it comes with this question. God, are you good? Are you trust? Okay, okay, you're God, so you get to be in charge. There ain't no arguing. I got nothing to say. But as you lead me, as you feed me, as you send me places, as you lead me into places that are going to be hard, are you good? And the place in which we receive that guarantee is the cross. is that we know this, that when you went into a place and it, you made a decision and it sinks your life in a branch and a pattern and it doesn't seem to go well. In fact, it may go really bad. And you start to go, okay, God, did I, did I sin? Did I mishear you? Are you punishing me for that sin back there that caused this turn? And the answer of the cross is No. There may be consequences, temporal consequences. But God says, all things are now for your good. And the cross guarantees it. It means that there is no more punishment left for you. That when you, when you fail to hear correctly, when you disobey, it sends you down a trajectory of your life that is hard. But those, that trajectory is not a discipline or it's not a punishment. Because God has taken, Jesus has taken all the punishment that you deserve. And not only that, is he has guaranteed your future. Guaranteed it by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
How do we know where we're going? How do we know we get to the final destination? It's because he paid for it. He paved the way through death. How do we know, how do we know he's in charge? We know he's in charge, and he's good as he's in charge is because he is the king. He proved it. He proved that he's a good king by being the king who comes in and takes on death for us. So God's good. That's what we come to celebrate this morning at the table. I'm going to give a very clear understanding of the table this morning. I haven't done this in a long time. It's often connected to the sermon. For those of you who might be new believers and may not know much about the Lord's Supper, here's what it is. Jesus has given us this, this supper for this reason, that we are to remember what he did for us. What God did for us to win for you eternity. What did he do? We're going to take bread this morning, we're going to eat it. We're going to take a cup of grape juice and we're going to drink it. And it represents, the bread represents Christ's body. And the fact that God poured out all his wrath upon Jesus. Which means this, that we, we celebrate this and we remember that because it means there's no wrath, no more wrath left for you. Not one drop. And we take the cup and it represents his blood which was shed. And God's blood, Christ's blood, it cleanses you. It means he washes away your sins. The language of the, of, the, of the Old Testament is your sins are now as far as the east is from the west. He washes them away. But his blood also is the, is the washing of his righteousness as well. It washes away your bad deeds and washes you clean with all his righteousness. It clothes you in his righteousness. How do you take the Lord's Supper? How do you receive it? Here's what you're saying. When you, if you this morning are taking the bread and you're taking the cup... You're making a declaration publicly to yourself and to the people around you that if Jesus hadn't taken God's wrath and if Jesus hadn't cleansed me of my sin, I am lost. I am lost. Now here's what that means. For those of you, if you don't believe in this Jesus, if you don't believe in a God, if you don't believe that you don't deserve wrath, if you don't trust Jesus, then by taking this bread and this cup, you'd be lying to everybody else around here. There's warnings in the Bible about that. But I'd also appeal to your humanity that you'd be proclaiming a lie to the people around you. I'd also say this. If you've never stood up and professed faith and made it public and declared to the world as Paul did, said my mission is to make Christ known, if you've never said, I follow Jesus and he is my life, then what we would say is, hey, come do that. Come profess faith publicly and then come and take the bread. One last warning. If there is a God who would enter into this world, who would come and to die for you and to make you his and would forgive you of all your sins, how dare us have bitterness and offense against a brother and sister and not forgive them? If you're holding out against somebody and failing to forgive that's actually a warning in the scriptures to not come to the table. That you go and reconcile yourself to that brother or sister. If you know somebody has something against you, you go and you reconcile yourself. And then as a brother and sister who've been united around Christ Jesus, you come back to the table and enjoy it together. But if you're someone who walks in here today, this morning, 
and you're saying, man, when I was king in my life, when I controlled my life, it went really bad. I need a new king. I need somebody to control my life who will direct my life. If you say that this morning, if you profess faith that Jesus is the one I follow, Jesus is the one I trust, that's his death and his resurrection that saves me, then you, brother and sister, I invite you to come and take and eat. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, this is very basic bread, and this is very basic juice. But gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would move through these elements. That Lord, not only as we remember and as we taste and as we eat, that Lord, you would move in our spirits, that you would encourage us as we dwell upon what Jesus did for us, we would have hope. That Lord, where we are questioning your goodness to us this morning, questioning whether you're, you're a good one to follow, whether your will and your way is, is, is actually good for us, that Lord, we would reflect on what you were willing to do to make us yours and say, where you lead me, I will go. You've proven yourself trustworthy. You've proven yourself good. So gracious God, I pray that you would extend your grace to us this morning through this bread and this cup. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.